Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we pay tribute to writer and satirist PJ O'Rourke. He got my phone number from somewhere and called and was full of good advice and encouragement. And I'm pleased but unsurprised to see in a lot of the tributes to him appearing on social media, dozens of recollections from journalists of subsequent generations talking about the time that PJ O'Rourke, who was a, a great hero to so many of us, went a mile out of his way to be helpful. Plus, we learn more about the curling stones that are sliding across our screens at the Winter Olympics. For more than 150 years now, we've been making bespoke curling stones, the best curling stones in the world. The process really is still very much based in traditional ways. Every single new stone that Kay's produces is actually hand polished and hand finished. And that's where the very experienced eyes of our craftsmen come into their own. All that and much more here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Hong Kong. It might not have seen a street protest for more than two years, but young people are still attracting the attention of the police. Our Hong Kong bureau chief, James Chambers, filed this report on the growing use of stop and search in the city and the far more visible presence of the boys and girls in blue. Two police officers are standing inside one of Hong Kong's main MTR subway stations in Central. The female officer acts as lookout, taking up a position alongside the platform for the eastbound island line. Scouring the crowds for suspicious commuters, she has plenty of mask-covered faces to choose from. Weekday foot traffic at 10.30am is still fairly busy, despite an unprecedented COVID-19 outbreak. Spotting a young man dressed all in black, she holds out her arms and ushers him towards a wall where her male colleague proceeds to turn out every single pocket in his cargo pants. The pat-down is cordial, and it's all over in a few minutes. The young man is allowed to get on with his journey after his Hong Kong ID card has been called in and checked over the radio. The Hong Kong police have broad powers of stop and search, and these types of incidents have become an all-too-common sight, especially in MTR stations. Hardly a week goes by, without me witnessing at least one ID check taking place. Each time, it involves a young Cantonese man, and each time, I walk by with a shake of the head, ruminating in silence about the unfairness of it all. Five minutes later, the two officers in Central are at it again. Same profile, same dress code, same result. Only the arrival of an older lady, presumably asking for directions, interrupts their morning routine. Are you patrolling the area? Yeah. yeah. So how did you know I was here? We just walked. You just came around the corner, saw me now, and just decided to just stop and ask me. The cops conducted a total of 1,810,144 ID checks last year, a staggering amount in a city of around 7.5 million people. According to official figures, which Monocle obtained following a request for information, this is the highest number of stop and searches in the last five years, and the annual tally is on an upward trend. Apparently, the police force doesn't keep any more detailed information on that top-line number, 
or any demographic breakdowns. But I'd put any money on the vast majority of them being young, male, and Cantonese. How many of these ID checks led to arrests being made and charges being brought? We don't know. Around 3,000 young people, aged between 10 and 20 years old, were arrested in 2021. That doesn't seem a lot, and not all of them would have come via ID checks. How many were charged and later convicted of a crime? Again, it's unclear. But I did read about one film student and part-time reporter who was found to be carrying two air guns and a walkie-talkie. In court, the defendant, who was on his way to cover an event at a police academy, claimed they were props for a school project. So why are so many young men still coming under so much suspicion? We are talking about 2021 and 2022 after all, not 2019 during the height of the protests, or even the aftermath in 2020, when the national security law came in and brought all forms of protesting to an abrupt halt. It can't just be the color of their clothes. Plenty of people of all ages and ethnicities wear black in Hong Kong, including myself, and I've never been stopped or asked to produce my Hong Kong ID. The same goes for bags. Backpacks are so common in Hong Kong, I'd be suspicious of anyone who isn't lugging around a large rucksack. The reality is that policing in Hong Kong has been a lot more visible and proactive since the protests. And now that calm has returned to the streets, the force is on the lookout for a new threat, domestic terrorism. Police were put on high alert last summer when a 50-year-old man stabbed a patrolman in the back in Causeway Bay. So far, that vicious attack, carried out on the anniversary of Hong Kong's return to China, has been an isolated incident. But it's virtually impossible to predict what will happen next. Many of the traditional methods of opposing the government, whether on the streets, in parliament or in print, have disappeared. So dissent has either gone away, gone underground or gone abroad. In recent months, an organization called the Interdepartmental Counterterrorism Unit has started putting up posters around the city on the sides of buses, trams, and inside MTR stations, warning citizens to run, hide, and report from explosions and violent attacks. Its latest campaign urges the public to spot and report. One poster features a coffee shop barista who spies a customer in a baseball cap browsing for flick knives on his smartphone. Another one involves a cleaner in a high-vis vest stumbling upon a young man picking up a large delivery of chemicals. The most explicit poster shows a middle-aged woman watching two mop-top young boys who may or may not be her sons through a crack in the doorway. The conspirators are sitting around a mass of wires and a pile of what looks like pipe bombs, while one of them mixes liquids together in a glass lab beaker, a tough one to pass off as a school project. A large-scale incident of domestic terrorism targeting a mass gathering would shake Hong Kong to its core. Hong Kong is one of the safest major cities in the world and continued to be so even during the chaotic scenes of 2019. There were less than 65,000 crimes in total last year, another staggering number for a population of some 7.5 million people. This low crime rate is one of the main reasons why so many families, both local and foreign, 
like to call this city home. But demonizing young people comes with its own risks and some potential consequences. At a time when plenty of families are already thinking about leaving Hong Kong, what parent would stand idly by as their teenage son is searched by the police, simply for walking down a street or wanting to take the MTR? And how much this fear-mongering is actually justified? The number of young people arrested last year fell by almost 25%. Is that evidence that all of those ID checks are working? Or is it proof that most schoolboys, most students, and most young men in Hong Kong are actually law-abiding citizens who are being unfairly picked on on a regular basis just because they happen to be young, male, and Cantonese? An ID check and a bag search may only take a few minutes but 1.8 million of them in only 12 months deserves more attention than a collective shrug or an individual shake of the head. Being young in Hong Kong must not become a criminal offence. If it does, then this city really doesn't have a future. Thank you, James. And now, for those Winter Olympics addicts, Case has swept away the competition when it comes to the production of curling stones at the Olympics. We find out more about how it makes its stones in Ayrshire, in Scotland. Case Curling is one of only two curling stone manufacturers in the world, and it's the only one that's based in Europe. It's based in Scotland. For more than 150 years now, we've been making bespoke curling stones, the best curling stones in the world, which are supplied to all the highest ranked championships in the world, including the Olympic Games, uh, World Championships, European Championships. My name is Mark Callan and I'm a director of Case Curling based in Mocklin in Scotland. The type of material we use is from Ailsa Craig and it's called Ailsa Craig Granite. Ailsa Craig is a small island off the west coast of Scotland, about 10 miles, 16 kilometres off the coast. It is quite unique. It's even been described as a freak of nature because the island is only about 1.1 miles long at maximum and it's roughly divided in two. Uh, there's a lighthouse um, situated on the island and if you're looking from the mainland, everything to the left of the island is Ailsa Craig common green granite and everything to the right of the lighthouse is Ailsa Craig blue hone. Now what makes these granite's very, very special is that the Ailsa Craig common green, which is used for the body of the stone, the bit that takes all the, the bashing and the beating in the game that you see, is a very open weave granite, so it's very good at absorbing impacts and obviously has a, a very long life cycle. The Ailsa Craig blue hone, to all intents and purposes, is effectively waterproof and that makes up what we call the running band or the insert of the stone and that is the only piece of the stone that actually touches the ice and therefore it's ideal because of its waterproof qualities um, for uh, long life as well on the ice. Ilsa Craig is an island off the west coast and because of its location it's very difficult to move the raw material from the island uh, to the factory in Mochlin. Once uh, approximately every 10 years we go to the island and we take a sufficient amount of granite off the island 
bring it back to the mainland to our storage area, which we then pick off uh, the granite as we need it at the factory. For the body of the stone, the boulders that we're taking off the island are in the region of five to seven tons each, and the boulders that we're taking off of the blue hone granite are in the region of one and a half to three tons. The blue hone is quite easy to deal with because we're, we're taking a smaller amount each time out of it, so it can be brought to the factory in cord to give us the desired material for the insert. However, the big five to seven ton common green boulders, we actually cut them into slabs, slightly thicker than what the finished curling stone will be. And from the slab, we actually have a coring process where we make what we call cheeses, which are a very rough shaped curling stone. But the starting point for us to mold and model the stone into what becomes the finished product. The process really is still very much based in traditional ways. We have machines that do some of the, the heavy work of the actual shaping of the stone, but every single new stone that Kays produces is actually hand polished and hand finished. And that's where uh, the very experienced eyes of our craftsmen come into their own. Granite being natural is volcanic from many millions of years ago. It is possible that there is the odd crack or fissure within the granite that's not initially spotted through the, the, the original or early part of the process. As it gets towards the polishing and whatever, any flaws or any material defect within the stone then becomes very apparent to a trained eye. And of course, if a stone has a flaw or a defect, then we will not uh, certify it fit for, for use in, in a playing conditions or championships. The stone will then become decorative, where it will be used more for, for show purposes. product's final road to being ready to go out the door is very much a hand-based and very much a craftsman's area. It's the kind of skills that have been learned over a long period of time and passed on throughout the 150 plus years history of Case. Before a stone goes out the door, uh, before it's sent out to a club or a, a championship or an association, it is thoroughly checked by our experts, our craftsmen, to make sure there are absolutely no flaws, um, because a flaw is a weakness in stone, and we don't want to send out our product with any kind of weakness. All our stones, so that we can keep a track of them, are basically given a birth certificate, in short, a serial number, so that we can track uh, what happens to the stones. In many years gone by, some of the, the serial numbering was a bit random, <laughs> to, to put it mildly, but uh, now it's a, a very much a, a structured process so that we know where stones um, go and what have you. We produced stones, for example, the Vancouver Olympics in Canada in 2010, and those were a special Olympic edition curling stone, which were then passed on from the Vancouver Olympics as a legacy to a local curling club. The local curling club then expanded to eight sheets Sheets is the playing surface, so there's a target area at each end, and that's determined as one sheet, or probably one lane, if you like. 
this particular club in Canada had built a new building that was actually able to accommodate eight lanes or eight sheets of ice. Therefore, obviously, they needed to double the number of stones that uh, they required. So they then used the other company in the world that uh, makes curling stones, which is based in Canada, to supply the new stones. That company took the stones that we had supplied as a, a trade-in against the new ones, and then they, we found out that they are still currently in use in a curling club just outside Riga in Latvia. I'm currently, uh, as I'm speaking to you, in Beijing. I'm actually in the Ice Cube Arena, uh, which is the venue that's holding the Beijing Winter Olympics curling competitions. The stones have been here in China now since the, the latter part of 2019. Obviously, the, the, the global situation has meant that they've been in storage, uh, and now it's uh, extremely nice and quite moving for me to see them out of storage and being used for what they were designed for and being played with at the highest level of sport, uh, which is the Olympic Games. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now it's time for Monaco's Andrew Muller to pay tribute to writer and political satirist P.J. O'Rourke, who died this week aged 74. The anarchistic and nihilistic point of view that is common at the end of the teens and the beginning of the 20s and on for those of us who matured very late Reality will shake you out of that. I mean, anybody who tells me they're an anarchist, I'll invite them to revisit Mogadishu with me. Let me show you what anarchy, you know, really means, you know. And on the other hand, the sort of like armed nitwit Trump supporters, and there are some armed nitwits on the other side of the violent Antifa types, maybe should have had a little go at Northern Ireland back in the 80s. If you want to see where that road leads, if you want to take that road all the way down to the end of that road, Belfast was an enlightening experience, as were the Balkans and so on. So all that like goes to mitigate one's absolutism and certainly one's anarchism and nihilism. That was P.J. O'Rourke in conversation with Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. And Andrew joins me now in the studio. Andrew, you knew P.J. O'Rourke well. Would you want to tell us a story how you first met? Uh, yeah, I first met P.J. in, I think, 1995 when Melody Maker, which I worked for then, sent me to interview him. Uh, I was mildly terrified because I had been a huge fan since happening across his book Holidays in Hell, which struck me at the time as pretty much a blueprint for what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Um, and he just he just couldn't have been nicer. I did I do remember anxiously 
casually and awkwardly giving giving him some of my clippings, um, not really expecting anything to come of that. But he, he got my phone number from somewhere and called a few days later and was full of good advice and encouragement. And that was a, a pattern that was repeated a few times. And I'm, I'm pleased but unsurprised to see in a lot of the tributes to him appearing on social media, dozens of recollections from journalists of subsequent generations talking about the time that PJ O'Rourke, who was a, a great hero to so many of us, went a mile out of his way uh, to be helpful. What do you think it was about his writing that made him so great and so influential? First and foremost, he was incredibly funny. And I mean, in the pantheon of the great American comic authors and journalists, he's up there with absolutely anybody else you want to think about. Mark Twain, H.L. Mencken, S.J. Perelman, Hunter Thompson. He is absolutely the equal of any comic author the United States or really the Western literary canon has produced. Uh, but beyond that, he was he was a proper hack. He was a proper journalist. He didn't just sit at home uh, and make fun of things, which he could very easily have done. He went out into the field. He did proper reporting from very difficult and often dangerous places, uh, Somalia, Lebanon, Northern Ireland, uh, Afghanistan, the first Gulf War. Um, and and his, his writings from those places are incredibly evocative, uh, very among the most realistic and accurate uh, you know, depictions of war as it is fought that I've I've ever read. He uh, he was an extraordinarily good writer and an extraordinarily good journalist. Tell us more about how he helped you and what you learned from him. What kind of guidance did you get when it came to writing and journalism? Uh, there was the example of his own writing, and I, I, you know, I can remember when I first got a deal to do my first book in the late nineties, which was, you know, a, a pretty much straight up and down pastiche of Holidays in Hell. Really, it was my my extremely fallible attempt to replicate that. Uh, I, you know, I took the liberty of writing to him and asking him if he would do a blurb for the cover, and all I was at best hoping for was, you know, I heartily endorse this product or service, PJ O'Rourke. I didn't expect him to actually read any of it. In fact, I was faintly mortified by the prospect. But he asked me to send over the manuscript, and I sent it over and heard nothing for ages. Then he called me um, at my, my flat in London one evening and said, it's PJ. He said, I've read your book. Uh-huh. And I just thought, oh, dear God. Uh, and he said, have you got a couple of hours? Um, and he not only had he read it, uh, he'd made notes, uh, which he then talked me through. There were bits he really liked. There were bits he didn't think worked. Uh, and it was... If there was one advice he had, it was, if you're going to be funny, don't beat people over the head with it. The whole point of it can't be you trying to tell people how funny you are, if that makes sense. It was just relax, take a deep breath and let it come naturally, which it, which it always did to him. What does it tell us about his personality that he was so willing to help for you, for example? Uh, I, I think PJ's thing was, and it was it was definitely not just me, it, it, was, it was the same good humour you see in his writing. He does get unfairly written up as a sort of cranky conservative curmudgeon, which he was to an extent, but that was also to a large extent a shtick. Genuinely, I think what makes him so readable and stopped him from just being a one-note crank was that there was just a genuine enthusiasm and a passion 
for journalism, which he adored. And I think because of that, he really enjoyed other journalists. And I, I think he, he got a real buzz out of helping people along. Tell us more about his political views. How cranky and how conservative, conservative was he? <laughs> He's hard to pin down in that respect. His, his whole shtick in the 80s was being Rolling Stone magazine's house conservative. And, they, and I think he enjoyed winding up the massively liberal Democrat voting um, readers of Rolling Stone. But he, he was, as has been said of him, he was so far to the right on some issues that he would come around and bite you from the left. I can remember him writing about, for example, uh, migrants who come ashore in boats that I, I, he said something to the effect of how host countries or the countries they arrive in should basically set up stalls on the beach and hand out passports as they row ashore. You know, these people are citizens. They have, you know, they've taken great risks and travelled a long way to accomplish something with their lives and they should be welcomed. Uh, he was a libertarian, but definitely not an anarchist. And I, I think his creed was summed up by his line that there is only one human right, which is the right to do as you please. And with that comes the only human responsibility, which is the one to take the consequences. Mm. Just finally, Andrew, basing on all this, is it a good idea to meet your idols? Uh, In that particular instance, yes, absolutely it is. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. For tall stories this week, let's hear from Louis Harnett O'Mara. He takes us through the streets and history of the neighborhood where Alfonso Cuaron's 2018 film of the same name is set, Roma in Mexico City. La Roma, Colonia Roma, or better yet, just Roma. Walking through this neighborhood of Mexico City, you'll be struck by the broad, leafy avenues and verdant plazas with statues and fountains. The tastefully designed cafes and restaurants, their menus tellingly written out in English. And the jumble of architectural styles that still, today, come together to form something beautiful. This is not the Roma of Alfonso Cuaron, whose Oscar-winning film of the same name was set in the district in 1971. But there are traces of Quaron's world still visible here. The story of Roma has been one of ascent and decline in the past 120 years or so since its inception. Originally part of a broader development initiative that saw the birth of a spate of colonias in the city's west, including La Condesa, San Rafael and Juarez, Roma was always intended to house the Mexican capital's growing upper-middle class. Erected on the lake that once surrounded the city, the new satellite districts were meticulously planned to provide all manner of goods and services within walking distance for well-heeled Chilangos who were keen to escape the deteriorating city centre. Roma was among the most popular of these colonias, and it grew quickly. After enduring the 1910 revolution, by the 1920s and 30s, the neighbourhood was enjoying a building boom. But the mishmash of houses along these streets hint at the decline that was to come. The following decades saw the commercial redevelopment of Roma's grand old homes. World War II's rent control laws transformed its buildings into low-yield assets, and landlords chronically underinvested in the region. 
While still a genteel neighbourhood by the time Quaron depicted it in the 1970s, many of the wealthiest residents had upped sticks to new colonias contending for their favour, such as Palanco in the north and Jardines del Pedregal in the south. In their place, a working-class demographic moved in, coming in tandem with an increase in gang crime. Then, the earthquake struck. It's hard to understate the impact of the 1981 earthquake on Mexico City. Lower estimates suggest around 10,000 citizens died. Whole neighbourhoods were completely transformed, and Roma, one of the worst hit, counted among them. Though Roma's positioning above the lake had once provided a blank canvas right beside the city centre for urban developers, now those same artificial foundations proved to be its downfall. The better faring regions of the city were underpinned by volcanic rock, while in Roma buildings toppled indiscriminately. Whoever was left over from the region's old moneyed elite fled the city's own, and the region's fortunes were bleak. So, the final question is, how do we get to the here and now, with a Roma that's wealthy once again? For those familiar with the trajectories of impoverished districts in international hubs, there's one clear route out. Think of East Berlin after the fall of the Berlin Wall, or Hackney's transformation in the 2000s. It begins with artists in search of cheaper rent. While a no-go zone for the Mexican middle classes in the 90s and 2000s, Roma became increasingly popular among bohemian communities, often from abroad, who saw it as an affordable international base. It was the flourishing cultural scene born out of this that drew outsiders in and made investments profitable. Though they sprout from broken pavements, the trees here are well tended once again. Of course, concerns remain. In an age-old story for booming capitals, the influx of foreigners into Roma has priced the average citizen out. The new range of international shopping and dining options has watered down the Mexican character of the area. And many fear there is a lack of real engagement between expats and locals, which risks breeding resentment. But if there's anything we've learned about Roma, it's that there's always room for reinvention. Now it's time to wait and see what the next chapter brings. And on this week's Foreign Desk Explainer, the Mauritius flag was raised over the Chagos Islands this week in defiance of the UK Home Office, which claims to have bought the deeds fair and square. Andrew Muller explains the history of the contested ownership and how one person's home is another military base. A foreign flag hoisted on remote islands belonging to the United Kingdom. A revival of a rancorous territorial dispute. An embattled conservative British Prime Minister always eager for any opportunity to wave the Union Jack and wheel out their Churchillisms. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. A uh, year ending in two. 
At which point, confecting further similarities between the Falkland Islands crisis of 1982 and the Chagos Islands flap of this week becomes a bit of a reach, if we're honest. With all due acknowledgement of the risks of tempting fate and of the weird mood still engulfing post-Brexit Britain generally, it is unlikely that coming weeks will see a Royal Navy task force waved tearfully off from a Portsmouth harbour bedecked in red, white and blue, while a brass band serenades them with rousing patriotic melodies. That said, tempting fate, weird mood, etc., this would appear to have the makings of an easy win for Britain. The invasion force, which has raised the flag of Mauritius on the Chagos Islands for the first time, is commanded by Mauritius's ambassador to the United Nations, Jagdish Kunjul, and appears to consist of maybe a dozen unarmed people clad in T-shirts and jeans, reinforced by a lucky cohort of journalists putting a cruise from the Seychelles on expenses. The official reason for the trip, which the UK had pledged not to interfere with, is to survey the partially submerged Blenheim Reef near the Chagos Islands, seeking evidence to present in Mauritius's maritime border dispute with the Maldives, which is a whole other row, though also unlikely to result in any reenactment of the Battle of Midway or anything. Mauritius's beef with the UK over the Chagos Islands dates back to 1965, when the UK paid £3 million for the remote archipelago, which the UK prefers to describe as the British Indian Ocean Territory. Mauritius's line since has been that the UK forced this deal as the price for Mauritius's independence, which Mauritius duly gained in 1968. The events following the UK's acquisition of the Chagos Islands do not rank among Britain's finest hours. Between 1967 and 1973, the entire population of the Chagos Islands, perhaps 1,000 people, was evicted, mostly to Mauritius and the Seychelles. Around the same time the UK acquired the Chagos Islands, it had concluded an agreement with the United States to build a joint military base on the largest island, Diego Garcia. The base is there still, a resupply and maintenance facility for the US Navy and a runway which the US Air Force used in operations over Afghanistan and Iraq earlier this century. It has also been confirmed by US officials that Diego Garcia was used as a CIA black site for the interrogation of suspected Al-Qaeda detainees. Mauritius's insistence that the Chagos Islands belong rightfully to Mauritius has long seemed a pretty niche cause, not least perhaps because it was most passionately taken up by that sanctimonious and tedious cohort of the Western left that proceeds on the assumption that everything the US and UK do is wrong and terrible, with the result that everyone else kind of zones out, even when the US and UK have done something wrong and terrible with friends like these, etc. In recent years, however, Mauritius has gathered some momentum behind its argument. In 2019, the UN's International Court of Justice gave an advisory view that the UK should return the Chagos Islands to Mauritius, with a view to allowing the Chagossians to go home, if that's what they wanted. The United Kingdom is under an obligation to bring an end 
to its administration of the Chagos Archipelago as rapidly as possible, thereby enabling Mauritius to complete the decolonization of its territory in a manner consistent with the right of peoples to self-determination. A humiliating defeat for the UK and its ally, the US, in the UN General Assembly. Countries voting overwhelmingly, 116 nations, in favour of the people who used to live on a small group of islands called the Chagos. Just four countries voted on the side of the UK and the US. This idea was endorsed by UN General Assembly Resolution 73-295, and though General Assembly resolutions are non-binding, they can cause a country's reputation an amount of cosmetic tarnish. Mauritius's Prime Minister, Pravind Jugnauth, clearly well aware that beating up on the former colonial overlord rarely loses votes, has gone so far as to accuse the UK of crimes against humanity. It feels like we are back in 1965. The UK appears intent on toughing it out, and at any rate, the current agreement on the Diego Garcia base runs until 2036. The UK has said that it will cheerfully return the Chagos Islands to Mauritius at such time as they are no longer needed for military or security purposes, but the holding of one's breath in anticipation of that eventuality would be ill-advised. Senior UK defence brass have spoken quite openly about a pivot to the Indo-Pacific as China looms ever larger as a rival. Last year, the current chief of the UK defence staff, Admiral Sir Anthony Radican, specifically mentioned Diego Garcia as a key cog of such a strategy. Mauritius has a case, legally and morally. The Chagossians most certainly do. All concerned are entitled to leverage that sympathy for whatever concessions they can get, but unless they can figure out how to move Diego Garcia to somewhere less militarily useful, they won't be getting to go home. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to the curator here on Monocle 24. For Food Neighborhoods Now, this week we invited Gabriel Waterhouse, the founder of the Waterhouse Project in London, to share one of his top recipes. Hello, my name is Gabriel and I'm the creator of the Waterhouse Project, which is a dining experience based here in East London in Bethnal Green. We serve a set tasting menu which evolves throughout the seasons and we serve it alongside low intervention wines which come from small scale independent producers from across Europe. I began the Waterhouse project from my flat in Bethnal Green whilst working in some of London's best restaurants. The idea behind the project and the philosophy was to bring fine dining to a more informal and relaxed environment. It was about not compromising on the food, but creating a space where people felt more comfortable to enjoy it. We serve our experience from an open plan kitchen and we guide our guests through each course as our menu goes. The dish I want to talk about today is a dish made with mackerel, gooseberries and lovage. I think it's a good representation of my style of cooking. 
where the ingredients really become greater than the sum of their parts and each ingredient elevates the other. The mackerel we brine in salt water for 40 minutes and then cure it for 10 minutes in fennel and coriander seeds. We then leave it to fridge dry and it's cooked using a blowtorch or under the grill to crisp up the skin. To make the lovage emulsion, we blanch lovage in boiling water and then blend it in vegetable oil until it's steaming hot. We pass the oil through a muslin cloth until you get a bright green oil. And then we use this to make a kind of mayonnaise by whisking it over egg with white wine vinegar and a little bit of Dijon mustard. We finish it with a little bit of Greek yogurt just to let the texture down. For the horseradish sauce, we infuse fresh horseradish with cream and then season it with a little bit of lemon juice and salt. And then that is the finished dish. And the idea behind it is that the acidity of the gooseberry really cuts through the oiliness of the fish. And by brining it, you get a lovely kind of fresher texture and flavor to the mackerel too. And the horseradish brings a lovely gentle heat. Like I say, the flavors really become greater than some of their parts and it really elevates the flavor of the mackerel as well. And as you might know, I look at the global charts every week with my global countdown. This time I decided to investigate the Danish charts. For the second week running, Fernando, I find myself parachuted in to do the briefing on Global Countdown Day. I wish whoever is making these decisions upstairs would just tell me what I've done to upset them. You have a surprise today, actually, with the number one song. And I, I can't say no more. Well, I then it wouldn't be a surprise. Exactly, exactly. Is, is the surprise that it's actually any good? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? All I know is that we're heading to Denmark. And I have to say, I think the Danes are a bunch of originals. I was going to say a bunch of something else where <laughs> pop music is concerned, but do crack on. Uh, and of course, I have to I have to spoiler alert, there will be some swearing. It's not my fault, it's the chart's fault, okay? Fernando, there's usually a lot of swearing during this segment. It's just that the listeners don't hear it because it's the swearing I do while the music's playing. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's start with number five, the very X-rated. Uh, he's a Danish rapper from Albanian origin. And I'll explain his origins actually. Well, we, quite... hey, hey, who could argue with a hip-hop heritage like that? Exactly. Let's have a Listen to Jamillion with Hard That Fucking Good. Let's have a listen. Before I pass judgment, Fernando, does does the video involve him posing with a lot of guns? Of course, of oh, course. In that case, I mean, yeah, it, I, in that case, I'm taking a pass. No, but, but Justin Bieber was mentioned there as well. I have no idea why, but he was mentioned. But I never it, have any idea why Justin Bieber <laughs> mentioned. But it's interesting with Jim Million here. His his family they have a very difficult journey from Albania to Denmark. 
Denmark. He is a refugee. He asked, uh, well, not he, but his family asked for asylum in Denmark. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting. You see a lot of Danish artists, but with kind of this immigrant heritage as well. And, you know, and Jamilian is a big pop star as well, in the, well, rap star uh, in Denmark as well. Well, again, how high is the bar for that, though, really? Well, he's not at number four, is he? So, he's not at number four. What is number four, Fernando? You might like this. A little bit of rock uh, in the charts. I mean, they describe themselves as a post-punk band. Okay. Uh, but they're quite new as well. They only started in 2012. Um, you know, and their lyrics are very cerebral. cerebral but not with this song, I think, because I did translate the <laughs> lyrics. And it says, speak to me in the heat. I will under underneath your snow or something like that. A, a philosophical work. So I think that they can mm. be a little bit philosophical, but let's have a listen. It's, it's a band called The Minds of 99 with Under Den Sne, which means Under Your Snow. Was, was the singer unavailable the day they <laughs> yes. recorded that? And you know what? They're massive in Denmark. They are booked up for all the summer festivals there as well. And and it's interesting, I mean, that they are indeed, as you say, a little bit philosophical. They want to bring a little bit of culture to the charts. I mean... Well, well I hope it goes well for them. <laughs> Um, and they've made it all the way to number four in Denmark. Absolutely. Well, outstanding work, but not as outstanding, clearly. God, the, the links are seamless this week. Not as outstanding, clearly, as whoever has made it to the giddy heights of number three in Denmark. That's a very good position, and I'm not surprised to see him there as well. Gilly is one of the most famous singers uh, in Denmark as well. And you know what? He became a father recently. Well, congratulations. So, yes, congratulations to Gilly. And, and instead of singing just about, you know, girls and parties, now he's singing about being a father as well. Uh, and I think this is song... Well, so he's singing about waiting lists for schools and, and restrainer seats in cars and his shed. Absolutely, but with a good beat in the background. So this is a gilly with uh, Kunder Ik Morgen. Let's have a listen. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that he now has a family to feed and has to make a living and everything, but... And you know why I appreciate him as well? Because this song is from an album called Carnival. And one of the tracks on, on this album is called Brazil. Actually, just shameless pandering to that huge, huge potential market in Absolutely. your home country, which is crying out for a bit of Danish hip hop. Oh yes, I think I think they should explore a little bit more the Brazilian music market there. But Andrew, are you waiting? This is my favorite song. The the, the next one what, of all time. Of all time. In fact, I am. I will be adding this track to the Monaco Twenty Four playlist. My God! So we'll be listening to this a lot. They are very nice, and they wear. By the way, they wear lovely pale yellow shirts in the video which I adore. <laughs> so if you have any Danish listeners, tell me which brand is it. It's amazing. It's, it's a really well-cut uh, brand. I couldn't find the information, but the song is fantastic. May, well. Maybe somebody will let us know. This is Tobias Rahin and Andreas Odjeberg with Stormand, which means big man. <laughs> Sun, yes, you're more than the applause. 
have reached the the weekend have a lot to answer for section of the dialectic I notice but, but I love and the lyrics he says I never danced with a big man a great man like you and 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 uh, there was even I think what's, one of what's the he d- getting at there do you think yeah I don't know if if they are in love I have to do more research on that but all I know that Tobias he's very tall he's over two meters tall so I mean he's definitely he's, a big he's man he's two meter Tobias Exactly, two meters to be. Maybe he has to go to a special place to get yellow shirts for really tall people. Exactly. I mean, these yellow shirts—they are—they are bugging me. I really need. Yeah, I really if, need if, one of those. If we do have any listeners in Denmark, that is, any <laughs> listeners in Denmark who are still listening at this point, uh, could you please let Fernando know where those yellow shirts come from? Uh, at number one, Fernando, you said this was going to be a surprise to me, and what listeners cannot see is that I am literally on the edge of my seat while hanging on to my hat. So th- this. It better be good. It's not that good, I have to say, as a song. <laughs> but I think I think the story is interesting here because it's a two. I mean, this song has been released three years ago by an Australian singer-songwriter. This is and, a, this is a slow climb. Yeah, and I was like, why? The hell is it number one of the Danish charts? Question I, he may well be asking himself. I will tell you after we listen to this. This is a Dean Lewis from Sydney, Australia, with the song "Half a Man." Shatter it on the floor What's broken can't be whole anymore But how am I supposed to love you When I don't love who I am And how can I give you all of me When I'm only half a man That's, that's making me nostalgic for Ed Sheeran, <laughs> Fernando. That's dreadful. And by the way, this song was never even released as a single when it came out. So the reason it's number one is because of the latest episodes of X Factor Denmark. Uh, a contestant called Tobias as well. Here's Tobias, but a different one. Is everybody in Denmark called Tobias? <laughs> exactly. So Tobias sang the song because he's a big fan of Dean Lewis. But then it became viral, of course, on TikTok. And even do, Dean, Dean Lewis, you know, he starts sharing... Uh, the Tobias performance of his song and then look at that it's number one so we have this kind of curious stories on the Danish charts as well even though yeah it is I mean some people like ballads right it's not I uh, like ballads yeah. I bet I, I like the good ones I'm weird like that but but dare to dream is the lesson of this week's global countdown I think exactly and you can dance to a big man as well that as well And finally, to wrap up the curator, a delight for what we learned with Andrew Muller. We learned this week that inane Eurovision controversy season seems to have started early. A full 80 days or so until the pan-continental warbling tournament gets properly underway, we learned that it was all kicking off over this. This specifically being Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, winner of the competition to represent Ukraine at this year's Eurovision. The issue we learned is not so much the song itself, but the singer thereof, Alina Pash. An amount of uproar... Come on, let's have an amount of uproar. 
An amount of uproar, probably broadly similar to that, has erupted over reports that Ms Pash visited Crimea in 2015, which, as some have chosen to see, it counts as an endorsement of Russia's seizure and annexation of the peninsula the year before. The amount of uproar was, we learned, precisely the amount necessary to persuade her to withdraw from Eurovision. Ukraine, which might be thought to have more pressing concerns, has an amount of form for such brouhaha's. Or bruise haha, we've never figured out which is right. Our more friendless and unemployable listeners may recall that controversy erupted over Ukraine's 2019 entrant Maruv and her plans to tour Russia. She too withdrew. And if only Russia would follow her example, am I right? You should probably be braced for or resigned to the fact that suboptimal popular music is going to be something of a recurring theme of this week's monologue. And fair enough. But one of the stories is one of those ones where a politician deploys a particular artist's music in an ill-advised bid to look cool and then gets yelled at by the artist in question, and those are always fun. Because we learned that Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has not heard the joke about the definition of a gentleman being someone who can play the ukulele, but doesn't. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh, take me to the April sun in Cuba. I can't remember the words. It is possible that non-Antipodean listeners would not recognise the song, but then it's possible that listeners anywhere wouldn't have recognised their own names if rendered in Morrison's maladroit strumming. The song is April Sun in Cuba, a 1977 hit in Australia for the New Zealand band Dragon, and it goes like this. We learned that Dragon were unimpressed with Scott Morrison's version of their song and with Scott Morrison generally. Dragon issued a statement. Settle down. Part of which will now be read with due solemnity by Monocle 24's indignant has-beens desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It is a cynical move for a politician to co-opt music in an attempt to humanise themselves come election time. And we learned that Scott Morrison has no sense of humour. If he did, he'd have issued a statement decrying the cynicism of a rock band trying to co-opt politics when they have a tour coming up. Next gig, February 25th, Lizotte's Dinner Show Restaurant in Newcastle. Still seem to be tickets available. Happy to help. We learned, as cunningly foreshadowed earlier, that this had been quite the week for the crossover of political silliness and musical terribleness. In New Zealand, authorities became tired of an encampment of tedious dingbats established outside the Parliament building in Wellington to protest... Actually, no. We simply don't care. Police attempted to disperse the pestilential morons by berating them with incessant broadcasts of the dismal pop stylings of Barry Manilow... And this. Yeah, righto. 
and if we must. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. For we learned that among those sharing the global amusement at this spectacle was lamentable British dirge writer James Blunt, whose redeeming grace is appearing to hold his own works in even lower esteem than does any right-thinking citizen. Blunt tweeted that New Zealand's police should give him a shout if even Manilow wouldn't scatter the malcontents, and received the following reply from Trevor Mallard, Speaker of New Zealand's Parliament, as will be read in the appropriate accent by Monocle's Aotearoa Affairs Desk Chief, David Stevens. We will take you up on your very kind offer. My only doubt is whether it's fair to our police officers, but I think they'll be able to cope. An uncanny impersonation of the New Zealand House Speaker there, and if it isn't, who'd know? If even James Blunt doesn't shift the protesters, Monocle 24 offers the option of one of Fernando Augusto Pacheco's global countdowns. Hey! Every Thursday on The Briefing. And we learned this week of an irreplaceable loss in the ranks of takers of Rye Sidelong Looks at the News with the passing of the great American satirist P.J. O'Rourke, late of National Lampoon, Rolling Stone and The Atlantic, among other journals, at the age of 74. Anyone who has read PJ's books already knows that he was a genuine heir to Mark Twain and H.L. Mencken in the pantheon of American humorists. Anyone who hasn't has a treat awaiting them. For all that PJ made his name and his living as a liberal-baiting conservative curmudgeon, when away from the keyboard he was a wise, thoughtful and surprisingly compassionate humanist, his always evolving view of the world honed by hard-earned experience in the field. The very least he deserves is the honour of playing us out this week. This is PJ O'Rourke speaking to Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk in late 2020. Well, I think, yeah, I think one, you know, life experience, you can speak to this. I mean, life experience gets the anarchistic and nihilistic point of view that is common at the end of the teens and the beginning of the 20s and on for those of us who matured very late. Reality will shake you out of that. I mean, anybody who tells me they're an anarchist, I'll invite them to revisit Mogadishu with me. Let me show you what anarchy, you know, really means, you know. And on the other hand, the sort of like armed nitwit Trump supporters, and there are some armed nitwits on the other side of the violent Antifa types, maybe should have had a little go at Northern Ireland back in the 80s. If you want to see where that road leads, if you want to take that road all the way down to the end of that road, Belfast was an enlightening experience, as were the Balkans and so on. So all that like goes to mitigate one's absolutism and certainly one's anarchism and nihilism. Go well, friend. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening.